everybody, welcome back to the Wisdom Nutrition Podcast. This is Alex Hacken. And today I'm going to be going into the topic of the U.S. empire, the contours of it, the global reach of it, the incorporation of capitalism into it, and the role that the national security state and the military industrial complex plays in orchestrating this empire. And the material in this video is based on the material I just finished putting out as part of an 11-part series on the secret history of the 20th century. And that chapter or that series is itself part of a larger book project called Philosophy, Its Origin, Purpose, and Destiny. And this is one of the last chapters in it. And in this chapter, one of the things I spent a lot of time discussing was the, was the idea that during the 20th century, we saw a new form of governance entity be given birth to. And this new governance entity is something I'm calling the technocratic superstate. And it emerged incrementally over the first few decades of the 20th century and really was formally given birth to during World War II and after World War II. And in effect, what this technocratic superstate looks like is in, and how it originally came into being is as a sort of centrally managed empire of secret black projects and more specifically secret technological research and scientific research uh, institutes that are deeply black, so to speak, and working on breakthrough technologies and things of that nature, things like UFOs. And this uh, secret research entity exists as a type of government apart. It's outside of democratic control, but it's so classified and concealed, it's outside of the awareness of most of the national security state and most of the architecture of U.S. empire and the U.S. military industrial complex. This exists at a very elite level, and it is responsible for these secret black project programs. I also think it's responsible for things like the NSA and the global security grid and information control grid. I think it's a central entity behind that because that's associated with protecting the secrecy of the new paradigms of science and technology that it is responsible for researching and developing. So the 20th century saw this new type of entity be given birth to on the world stage. And it exists alongside the public institutions of democracy. And it also exists alongside and within the global institutions of capitalism and the various networks of cartels and oligarchs that control that. But it's, it's autonomous unto itself. And uh, in my opinion, it is the central orchestrator of U.S. empire. It's technocratic because it is a mix between governance and bureaucracy and science and technology, but it's running on more of a scientific logic. It exists almost like a think tank, and its approach to governance is something along the lines of social engineering. So in this series, I'm going to be exploring this topic. I, I just wrote about it over this long series of articles, so now I'm going to be uh, overviewing a lot of clips from different thinkers and authors and researchers who... I drew from over the course of writing those articles. So now we're going to hear from them in their own words about the architecture of this of this new entity that was given birth to in the 20th century. Without further ado, I'm going to start with the clips I'm going to be going into. The first one is from a very significant figure in terms of researching geopolitics. His name is John Perkins. He was a so-called hit economic hitman back in the 70s. And that meant he worked as part of the secret machinery of U.S. empire. And his particular role was to 
um, sort of covertly under the auspices of U.S. corporations to go in and uh, basically bribe foreign politicians and get them to play ball with U.S. foreign policy, which was basically for U.S. corporations to come in and occupy their key industries and to take political control of the country and, and have the government be basically a proxy. So this idea that U.S. empire exists with a number of vassal colonies around the world is kind of a good thing to keep in mind about how this, this sort of secret empire works. And it's run largely through an economic logic. And so that's what he's going to be talking about in this video. He's going to be talking about how there's a secret U.S. empire and there is a, a heavily uh, corporate and financial component to it. And that's involved with masking the fact that there is this empire. It's run secretly because it's run on a private basis. And uh, as we'll be going into further, it's supported by this architecture of black projects and covert projects and uh, things of that nature. So without further ado, let's hear from John Perkins and, uh, and then I'll be back with some commentary. It's very fair to say that the modern empire is created secretly with a sort of invisible hand, invisible operations. Um, in the past, all the old empires, the British Empire, the Spanish, the Portuguese, uh, the Romans, uh, everybody knew that those empires were being created. Uh, countries sent their young men off to conquer other lands, and everybody bragged about it. You know, there was always a justification, spreading civilization, spreading Christianity, something along those lines. But the fact of the matter is, everybody knew what was going on. Well, today, this empire that's been created, most people living in the United States, for example, have no idea uh, that we've been doing this, that they are benefiting from the fruits of terrible exploitation of human and natural resources around the planet. People don't know this. And, and frankly, I think this is a huge threat to democracy because a democracy is built on the preposition that you have an, informed, an, an informed electorate. And if your electorate doesn't understand this most basic policy uh, of foreign affairs, then it's not informed. And if we're not informed, then how do we vote democratically? All right, here we see that he's talking about basically this idea that, you know, overtly America is a nation state with a democracy and we engage with other nations on that type of level of equality. Actually, covertly, there's this vast infrastructure that's put in place around the world that's being run out of America and American corporations and banks. And this is like a global empire, but it's economic in basis. The corporatocracy is this group of individuals, men mostly, a few women, who run our biggest corporations. And they really act as the emperor of this empire. Um, they control uh, our media, either through direct ownership or advertising. They control most of our uh, politicians because they finance their campaigns, either through their corporations or through personal contributions that come out of the corporations. And uh, they're not elected. They don't serve a limited term. They don't report to anybody. Uh, they really very, very much are running things. And they work under the premise that they should maximize profits regardless of the environmental and social costs. At the very top of the corporatocracy, you really can't tell whether a person's working for a private corporation or the government because they're always moving back and forth. So, you know, you've got a guy who one moment is the president of, of, of a big construction company like Halliburton, and, and the next moment he's, he's vice president of the United States or the president who was in the oil business. And, and this is true whether you've got Democrats or Republicans in the office. You have the moving back and forth through the revolving door. And once again, it's, it's that corporatocracy. 
and you've got the people moving back and forth between these things, working with each other. So the big corporations almost always have financial people on their boards, and the big financial institutions almost always have corporate people on their boards. And there's this interweaving and intermeshing at the very, very top. And then all of them, at one point or another, probably work for the government or with the government. And the government people come into the banking system or the corporate system when they retire from government. And then maybe they go back again at some point in time. And in a way, um, our government is, is invisible a lot of the time, and its policies are carried out by our corporations on one level or another. And then again, the policies of the government are basically forged by the corporatocracy and then presented to the government. They become government policy. So it's an incredibly cozy relationship and a very dangerous relationship. So it's a very insidious and, and I'd have to say a corrupt system a system that just feeds into the hands of what we call the corporatocracy and to a large degree works against everybody else in the world. In this next clip, he's going to talk about how he participated as a covert operative in this system for a period as a economic hitman. And this means that he was involved with moving into an area kind of covertly under the, sky, under the skies of private banks and corporations. He would go in and meet with the leaders of foreign nations in Latin America and the Middle East, and he would be involved with bribing their politicians and uh, basically trying to get them to play ball with this economic empire that America was running. And part of that means allowing American banks to control their, you know, their nation's resources. We economic hitmen really have been the ones responsible for creating this first truly global empire. And we work many different ways. Um, but perhaps the most common is that we will identify a, a country that has resources our corporations covet, like oil, and then uh, arrange a huge loan to that country from the World Bank or one of its sister organizations. But the money never actually goes to the country. Instead, it goes to our big corporations to build infrastructure projects in that country, power plants, industrial parks, ports, things that benefit a few rich people in that country, in addition to our corporations but really don't help the majority of the people at all who are too poor to use much electricity or the ports or don't have the skills to get jobs in industrial parks. However, those people, the whole country is left holding a huge debt. It's such a big debt they can't repay it, and that's part of the plan, that they can't repay it. And so at some point, we economic hitmen go back to them and say, listen, you lost a lot of money, can't pay your debt, so sell your oil real cheap to our oil companies. Uh, allow us to build a military base in your country or uh, send troops in support of ours to someplace in the world like Iraq or vote with us on the next UN vote. And in that way, we've really created an empire, but we've done it very, very subtly. It's clandestine. So all the empires of the past were built on the military, and everybody knew they were building them. So the, the British knew they were building them, the French, the Germans, the, the Romans, the, the Greeks. And they were proud of it, and they always had some excuse like spreading civilization, spreading some religion, something like that. But they, they knew they were doing it. We don't. The majority of the people in the United States have no idea that we're living off the benefits of a clandestine empire. That today there's as much slavery in the world, more slavery in the world, than ever before. That our shirts, our shoes, everything we own is made under the guise of this empire and that there's a tremendous amount of people around the planet suffering as a result of this. We are less than 5% of the world's population living in the United States. We're consuming more than 25% of the world's resources. 
That's a tragedy. Okay, so we see there him talking about this idea that most Americans have no idea that they're, you know, they're participating in a vast military economic machine that, you know, millions of Americans work within. The fact of the matter is, you know, Americans are, are participating in a global empire that itself is playing host to and financing and resourcing a very secret black projects infrastructure. I think of that as the horizontal and vertical dimensions of U.S. empire. There's a black projects, you know, world that's, that's you know, hidden behind secrecy and compartmentalization and who knows how, you know, how high it stretches and how secret it goes. But that's the vertical dimension. And the horizontal dimension is the global spread of U.S. empire. And, uh, and you know, people don't have any idea that this is actually the case or most people don't. So that's uh, that's one of the key things to understand about the current global situation that we're in. So that's what we're going to be investigating as we go further into this. Next up is a series of clips from a, uh, a documentary that I found on YouTube. It's really good. It's from about 10 years ago. It is by David Schechter, and it's called Who, Who Rules America? And we're going to be hearing from Chris Hedges and a few other people, and they're going to be talking about the war and military-industrial aspect of this global U.S. empire. The United States has evolved from a nation into an empire with a far-flung system of bases, economic interests, and intertangled business dealings all around the world. Writer David Swanson believes that this military-industrial complex relies on wars or the threat of wars to stay in business. It's not just that more money is being spent on arms, but the rise of the military-industrial complex has been accompanied by an overall rise in corporate power, and not just in the military sphere. Top political leaders interact with corporate leaders at meetings of elites, like the Bilderberg Conference, the Trilateral Commission, and the International Monetary Fund meetings. It's all part of a global structure of corporate culture, politics, and power. Some, like the billionaire George Soros, told me a while back that the World Economic Forum is more like a networking party than a decision-making venue. Decisions are often made behind the scenes, not at public events. The Davos meeting is a enormous sort of cocktail party. Uh, a lot of contacts, people meet, and so on. A lot of things are discussed. It's actually very convenient because you can meet a lot of people whom you want to meet in, in a conf confined period of time. And it's also a media event. Is it also a symbol of the growth of sort of economic power, of over-political power, a lack of sovereign, a loss of sovereignty by some countries? Uh, um, well, it, it is actually symptomatic of the age because you have uh, uh, presidents and prime ministers courting uh, the the, uh, the, fi the financiers and the industrialists. We live, uh, we've undergone a coup d'etat. We live in a corporate state. Chris Hedges is a best-selling author and former reporter for the New York Times. The people who rule America are um, the large corporate 
entities, uh, which are supranational. They have no loyalty to the nation state. They are harvesting the country just like they're harvesting the rest of the globe. They're implanting a global neo-feudalism where workers around the planet have to be competitive, which means being competitive with sweatshop workers in Bangladesh who make 22 cents an hour or prison labor in China. It's it's a global neo-feudalism. Um, it, it's one that uh, is uh, unassailable, um, completely untouchable and more powerful than the host yeah. governments that uh, were there nominally based. Okay, now having introduced the corporate component of U.S. empire and how this military industrial complex sort of branches out from defense contractors at its center to this sort of vast network of global corporations and banks. Uh, having looked at that, we're now going to look at a particular component of this vast empire. One of the main areas is media, media ownership and using media to sort of engineer certain psychological perceptions about the, the type of world that we're living in. So this goes into trying to understand how we could have a global empire, but majority of Americans not understand or know that this is the circumstances that we live in and that the system, this economic system we're participating in is actually at the centerpiece of a really extractive and very ugly global system. And so we're going to be exploring that in these next few clips. First up, we're going to be picking back up with another one of David Schechter's uh, documentary clips from his Who Rules America series. And then I have a couple other things after that that we'll be going further into this topic. Jeff Cohn worked in major media. Now he's one of the industry's fiercest critics. Half a dozen corporations own and control most of the mainstream media in our country. So if you're looking at who rules America or who owns America, it's the same people that propagandize to America. The press and the outlets that report news or convey information are just a small slice of vast media empires producing entertainment products that also sell a way of life based on consumption. When you look at who's on the boards of media corporations, they're also on the boards of U.S. oil companies, and they're on the boards of uh, U.S. military contractors. So uh, trying to study who owns America, you're really also, these are the people that own the media. We don't have a state media, but in some ways it's very much like a state media. It's the corporate state. If this is true, then we can say that the American media doesn't just report news. As we'll see, it's not independent of the system, but a pillar of it. It reinforces the worldview and defends the interests of those who rule America. All right, in this next clip, we're going to look at the more specific dynamics about how this corporate media machine manufactures consent. And this is a really clever clip I'm going to uh, be citing here. That is from Al Jazeera, but it was, I think, narrated by the woman from Democracy Now! And it's about Noam Chomsky's work, Manufacturing Consent. And this goes into the architecture of how this media machine, you know, it's owned by corporations, but it seems to serve a central sort of command structure. So ultimately, it's run out of the national security state, but it's run through this sort of corporate cartel of media companies. And this is the role that it plays, it's, it's to manufacture uh, consent, or as I term it in my chapter, it it engineers uh, and manages worldview perceptions, and so 
that's a component of this sort of covert empire. In 1988, Noam Chomsky co-authored a book with Edward Herman called Manufacturing Consent. It blasted apart the notion that media acts as a check on political powers. Media operate through five filters. The first has to do with ownership. Mass media firms are big corporations. Often, they're part of even bigger conglomerates. Their endgame, profit. And so it's in their interests to push for whatever guarantees that profit. Critical journalism takes second place to the needs and interests of the corporation. The second filter exposes the real role of advertising. Media costs a lot more than consumers will ever pay. So who fills the gap? Advertisers. And what are the advertisers paying for? Audiences. And so it isn't so much that the media are selling you a product, their output. They're also selling advertisers a product, you. How does the establishment manage the media? That's the third filter. Journalism cannot be a check on power because the very system encourages complicity. Governments, corporations, big institutions know how to play the media game. They know how to influence the news narrative. They feed media scoops, official accounts, interviews with the experts. They make themselves crucial to the process of journalism. So those in power and those who report on them are in bed with each other. If you want to challenge power, you'll be pushed to the margins. Your name won't be down. You won't be getting in. You've lost your access. You've lost the story. When the media, journalists, whistleblowers, sources, stray away from the consensus, they get flat. That's the fourth filter. When the story is inconvenient for the powers that be, you'll see the flat machine in action discrediting sources, trashing stories, and diverting the conversation. To manufacture consent, you need an enemy, a target. That common enemy is the fifth filter. Communism, terrorists, immigrants. A common enemy, a boogeyman to fear, helps corral public opinion. Five filters, one big media theory. Consent is being manufactured all around you, all the time. So there we see how the media is really used as an instrument of empire and of large-scale imperial objectives. You know, they're formulated centrally, then they're sold to the population, and they're sort of installed upon the population it is something that the population doesn't even really see. 
you know, the scope of what's happening and, and, and starts to tell themselves a different story about the system that they're participating in. And so that's the, that's the role of the media is to manufacture consent in that system. So I want to pick up on this theme more in this next clip. We're going to hear from Catherine Austin Fitz, who's a financial analyst who I like a lot and have a lot of respect for. She uh, talks here in these upcoming clips about how the financial media, you know, its role is to not report on what's actually happening in the industry, but to sell you on a perspective about what the financial system is and what its purpose and role is. And the idea that it's part of a free market society, it's not. It's this very centrally managed and centrally controlled uh, instrument of this larger, this sort of vast machinery of empire. And so that's what we're going to hear now. We live in a world where there's an official reality versus reality. And the job of media has become to affirm that official reality, police that official reality, and destroy or trash any person or vision that starts to educate people about reality. The mainstream financial media today is really a tool to help harvest you. The, the goal of the corporate infrastructure is to lead and manage a very centralized system. We're watching a process where governance of resources and resource allocation is being uh, is being shifted into a small number of hands and being managed through corporate, private corporations and investment. And, and essentially all of that is operating against the best interests of most people. So whether it's losing your civil liberties or losing your privacy or losing your freedoms or having your money and retirement uh, savings drained, literally we are watching an infrastructure which is harvesting your personal health and wealth. So you are being lied to and you are being taken advantage of. And frankly, the goal of the mainstream media is to facilitate that process and be entertaining as they do it. All right, there you heard Catherine Felsen Fitz talking about how it's a system and the media component and the financial component, they work together. And if they're working together, that means there has to be a central entity that's coordinating it. and. For me, that's this technocratic superstate concept. And so one of the uh, aspects of the technocratic superstate is to develop secret technologies. And then a second component is to orchestrate a global empire uh, that's outwardly capitalistic, but inwardly run on national security grounds. Um, but then a third component is to install a global security grid, a global information control grid partly to, again, protect secrecy, but partly because the, uh, the technocratic type of governance model that's being used, it uses science as a type of governing principle. So it seeks to engineer a society. That's its approach to government, is, is so, kind of social engineering. So the scientific method needs the input of data, the flow of data into the central sort of brain so it can evaluate and model, and then it can specify directions and regulations to the outer branches of uh, society. So the central core can direct, you know, the motions of the overall social organism through this use of data. So uh, in this upcoming clip, we're going to hear about, um, again, this is from David Schechter's, uh, one of his documentaries. This is about, about the National Security Agency and like the whole spy network that goes on through the Silicon Valley, 
you know, corporations. It's all vacuumed up into a central source, and that's part of this technocratic superstate. So that's what this next clip is going to get into. The Internet was originally created by a government defense agency, but it quickly became a platform for the growth of a new industry worldwide, offering a wide range of attractive products and services. As the web became popular with hundreds of millions of users, intelligence agencies like the NSA decided to use it for its own purposes. An instrument for global communication soon became a tool for massive spying, part of a surveillance industrial complex. The vast super-secret National Security Agency took to the Internet like a fish takes to water. There is an often invisible but deep connection between a high-tech government intelligence service and the corporate world, as well as tensions between the companies, their customers, and the government. It works on many levels. First, the intelligence agency works with thousands of businesses who offer services and provide contractors. Some of the big ones are on an NSA advisory panel, and others are deeply complicit with its global spying and surveillance mission. The same time that many are criticizing government spying, customers are pressuring their phone and internet companies, accusing them of violating their privacy. Here's one case documented in this chart shown in a lawsuit proving that AT&T set up a special room to intercept calls the government wanted to spy on. Now in this next clip, we're going to hear from Captain Austin Fitz, and she's going to talk about this sort of invisible grid of information that is not only managing the media, but also interfacing with the financial system. The whole thing is sort of one global social engineering structure. Sometimes I see the world as Disney World, although I've never been to Disney World. But I had a friend who took the tour of the parallel universe underneath Disney World that is used to manage and create the upper level. And so above ground, you have Minnie and Mickey and the Magic Castle. And below ground, you have a whole parallel universe of people who are rigging this lovely you know, make-believe world upstairs. And to me, reality is a combination of both of them, and, and Minnie and Mickey are up there in the official reality. And a lot of that is engineered through the systems. And so, for example, you could never have stolen $21 trillion or whatever the number is, whether it's laundering the $21 trillion in or laundering it out. You could never have done that without digital systems. You could never have run all the money secretly, whether it was fiat currency, slush funds, hidden system of finance, black budget, the systems, particularly the information systems, but all the communication systems, whether it's the post office, courier, satellites, all of these systems are essential to running an official reality very differently than the real reality. And it all comes down to being able to optimize your financing in total reality and use it to construct and manage and police the official reality. All right, in this next clip, we're going to hear from somebody who in the 1970s was one of the first like real public sort of revealers of this new doctrine, this new governance paradigm of technocracy. This is Zbigniew Brzezinski. He's someone who I cited in my series of articles. So in this clip here, he's going to reference what Catherine Austin Fitz was just talking about, this idea that all the data is being funneled into a central source. He's going to acknowledge the fact that this is true. And uh, but he's he's going to say he's going to be kind of coy about it. He's going to be like, we don't really know what this means or if it's thought out. But actually, in the 1970s, he wrote a book on technocracy. 
So, you know, I think he's so calm and casual about when he talks about this data mining operation because he understands that it's being funneled into a central technocratic entity who's doing the processing and the modeling and is gradually gaining control over the, the economic order. Something is happening to our information or our storage of information um, that we don't quite understand or necessarily know the point of origin. And clearly that indicates that someone is taking advantage of modern technology to learn not only what kind of weapons we have, which is the traditional responsibility of intelligence, but what it is that we're doing and what is it about us that makes the relationship, the given relationship, particularly vulnerable for us. Well, that's a whole new dimension, which we haven't yet thought through, for which we don't have really systematic strategic red remedies. It's a new age in that respect. So like he was saying, it is a new age. We're entering a new age and this new governance paradigm has been born into the world. As we move into a sort of a post-capitalist world order and an era of global governance, this paradigm of technocracy is going to play a more and more dominant role in organizing the structure of our economic life. So in this next clip, Patrick Wood, who is a prominent researcher on the subject of technocracy, in this clip, which is taken from a Corbett Report documentary, uh, he's going to talk briefly about what this whole global capitalist like economic empire is headed towards is actually installing something that's going to be post-capitalistic and is more having to do with this idea of technocracy and and global governance based on these scientific principles, scientific management of resources, scientific um, engineering of the economy and the energy systems. And so that's what he's going to be discussing here. There's two levels, and the way I look at technocracy, there's two levels operating at the same time. There's the, the operational side of it that has to do with things like smart grid, that have to do with things like uh, you know various technocratic innovations, surveillance is another big hot button for technocracy. These are operational issues. From a strategic point of view, it's, it's a different view of where it's headed. On an operational level, it's headed towards scientific dictatorship. And it doesn't, you don't have to be a visionary to figure that one out. You really anymore, you don't, it's there. And that's what sustainable development is all about is taking the resources of the world away from you and me, away from private companies that aren't part of the clique, if you will, and putting them into a global common trust that will be managed by them for their benefit. This is really nothing more than neo-feudalism, again, where the resources are owned by a few and everybody else gets to operate with those resources at their pleasure and discretion. All right, having now laid out the architecture of US empire and looked at the components of it, I'm gonna end things here and then we're gonna pick it back up in the follow-up episode and there we're going to start going into the the black projects world that has really been responsible for driving this new technocratic machinery. So the technocracy, it kind of emerged as a necessity after scientific research and weapons research and energy research. When it moved into a phase where it hit a critical threshold and it started making certain breakthroughs 
And the breakthroughs were so profound, both to the social order and to what it means for warfare. All of a sudden, this logic comes about where now you have to keep this secret. You have to create a world that's safe for these technologies to eventually be brought out in. Um, and you have to do you know, this empire covertly because you have to keep these technologies secret. So this new logic comes on board after technology hits a certain point. And so that's really what the story of this technocracy is, is it kind of arises out of a necessity. And one of the, necess- one of the necessities is secrecy and compartmentalization. And that, br- that sets the stage for a whole shadow realm of activities to come about. And these are inevitable byproducts of this system that's being put into place, this uh, secret system. So anyway, I'm going to end this episode here, and then we'll pick back up with this in uh, the second part of this series. And once again, thank you for tuning in. This is Alex Sackin and the Wisdom Tradition Podcast.